Father, we just want to thank you um, for a time where we can stop as a church as part of our worship, corporate worship together, and just petition you, Lord, um, to turn your gaze upon Jacobo and his family, to the Riveras, to the Addis family who are still both raising support, beginning the process of visas, Lord. Father, and as Israel was commanded to pray, Father, we pray that You would cause Your face to shine upon them. Father, that Your grace would be toward them. Father, that You'd bless the work of their hands for the sake of Your name as they've gone out for Christ, Lord, that Your Gospel might be proclaimed in Burgos to a people who first sent missionaries to America, Lord, and we're sending them back as it's become such a dark, godless place, Lord, where the veil lies over their eyes and they see no need for Christ, Lord, not knowing their spiritual poverty. So God, we want to pray, especially for Hokobo and his family as they are on the field um, and largely alone, Father. We want to thank you, first of all, for providing other pastors in the area, Lord, that he's gotten to meet and beginning to get to know, Lord, that can encourage him Father, that can give him insight into the hearts of the people, the, the issues that he's going to have to contend with and be aware of as he seeks to share the gospel. Father, I pray you give Hakobo wisdom, discernment, in how to be a wise workman, laying the foundation of Christ, and then with wisdom building upon it, Lord. I pray for their kids, Lord, as they began school. What a transition that has been for them, and yet they've taken it so well, Lord. Um, taking it better in many ways than Jacobo and Stepha have. Um, thank you for the grace that you've, you've given toward them. I know that was a big concern they had for their children in, in acclimating to an entirely different culture and school system. Um, Father, we want to pray for, for the ability to, to speedily and quickly learn Spanish so that they can communicate with the people in their own language, not being content um, Father, till they can communicate clearly. Thank you for getting them opportunities in these classes, opening up slots for them to, to come in and to learn Spanish. Father, we want to pray for the Addis family, as well as the Rivera family, who's still raising support, and the Addises who are so close, Lord, and hopefully will begin making their way that way soon. And Father, we pray for the Riveras that you would encourage their heart um, to wait on You, to trust You for Your provision and Your timing. And Father, in this period of waiting, help them see that that's not inactivity. Sometimes waiting on You is the best activity they can do because it strengthens their faith. It gives them discernment into Your will, into Your ways. And Father, it confirms their faith when You answer clearly. So uh, strengthen them in that, Father. Thank You for the opportunities, as Jacobo and I have discussed many times, of how You ran them across our path um, and the like-mindedness, the immediate fellowship we enjoyed with them, Father. It's such a beautiful thing how You work and You bring the body into contact with others that we can partner with. Um, we're so thankful for that, Father, because we were seeking it and um, believing that's Your will. And sure enough, Father, You provided. Help us to be faithful outside of this Sunday, Father, to pray for them, to remember them, Father, even to call them or write them um, as they love hearing from this church and the people of this church, Father. 
what an encouragement it is to him, Father. So help us be a hand, a helping hand, helping voice, Father, a, a voice of truth and encouragement to them. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for being here. I'm excited for this morning's lesson. Um, we are almost done with our series on discipleship. I wanted to go briefly through what the next couple of weeks will look like. I'll preach, obviously, this morning. Bo was on standby. Just in case we had a baby, that's not going to happen. So, But we are scheduled to be induced Thursday. So I will have a baby next weekend, and I probably won't be here. So Bo is going to be in the pulpit next weekend. And then the following weekend after that, I'll finish the discipleship series we've been doing. And then we're going to move on to some other things, um, deacon ordination, and as, as well as some church membership stuff that we're going to put in place. So let me recap for you kind of what, what we've looked at the last three weeks. It's important because this morning is really going to follow from that. Um, we've looked at specifically the work of discipleship, and that begins, we saw, with evangelizing. Evangelism, first and foremost, is declaring the gospel. That's what evangelism is. It's verbal as well as visible. And that's been a very intentional aspect of our, our mission statement. Um, the three points we have, gospel-centeredness, transformational community, and, and visible and verbal faith. In evangelism, I made the point, evangelism is distinct from works of service or outreach in that sense. You don't not do works of service or, or outreach works. But if you're doing works of service, you're not necessarily evangelizing. Evangelizing is speaking the gospel and showing the gospel that you speak through your life. From there, we saw the structure built into humanity from the very beginning of creation. That God made man, and it was not good that he was alone. And that was a very, for me personally, a very influential message. I loved it. Um, even in perfect creation, sinless creation, Adam had fellowship with God. He walked with God. He talked with the Lord. But he was alone because there was no one who perfectly corresponded to him. And man truly needs that. That's something man needs as a creation of God. And so God, the, the beauty of the incarnation is this. God knew that man needs man. So what did he do? He added humanity and came to us in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. So that now, through Jesus, men can correspond to the Father with Jesus as our head, as our representative, as our substitute. It's a beautiful study. But the way that plays into evangelism is this. People need people to hear the gospel. They receive it from people. They, uh, they, they need to see the importance of a person and the likeness of God coming to them telling these, these people who don't know the Lord yet what that means, what that looks like, the implications for life, for everything else. And then last week we considered the need for compassion and empathetic evangelism. We don't simply preach the gospel to people. We enter into their life and we carry their burden. I love what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He loved those people so much, he preached the gospel to them but He also gave them His very being. He became like a nursing mother, He said. Um, so often, our, our sharing the truth with people is just kind of distant and cold because we're not truly willing to, to open ourselves up 
and enter into the situation that they find themselves in. But we see the pattern with Christ is everywhere He went, He preached the Gospel, but He also took their burdens upon Him. And that was the most powerful form of ministry you can do. That's a, that's a whole picture of evangelism there. But it's costly. To be empathetic to somebody means you're going to open yourself up to carry their burdens. And guess what? Sometimes it's heavy, but they need it. In fact, Paul said that in doing that, you're actually fulfilling the law of Christ. Carrying one another's burdens. Sometimes it's costly because you empathize, you're compassionate with them, you love them, you give, which is the nature of any godly love. It's to give, not to receive, but it's not reciprocated back. Christ gave and gave and gave and gave until ultimately He gave His very life. And the ones He gave His very life to were sitting there mocking Him for it. So it's costly in that sense. You might not receive anything back, but it's still right to do. We're going to move past evangelism this morning into actually what happens when someone comes to faith. What are we aiming for? Hopefully you guys didn't miss the weather event that happened this week. We had torrential rains. Um, I loved it. But as you guys know, I've been working, um, teaching one class at the Christian school. And the first morning it was raining, we get to school and... There's like a river flowing out of the school and down the walls and everything else. It was a mess. Lindsay's probably had it many years before me, before I got there. And so we, as the teachers, all jumped on board, started cleaning up tiles, mopping stuff up, um, putting trash cans out, ushering kids away from the puddles. But, but almost in every room, there's at least a little leak. And then in some rooms, there's literally flowing down the wall. It was a mess. And as I talked to our administrator about it uh, and just asked him some questions, he said that it's been like that ever since the building was made. And the roofers who originally put the roof on are unwilling to come fix it. And then everyone else they have brought out to try and fix it have been unable to fix it. And so it just continues to run. As I reflected on that this week in in sermon preparation, I, I realized, you know, that's exactly what so often happens in the church with discipleship. We have a bunch of of new young believers who come to faith in Christ, and their lives are still very leaky. They're a mess. And the church so often is either unwilling or unable to help them. And so they just keep leaking everywhere. And they don't ever grow. They don't ever get past it. I thought, thank you, Lord, for all that rain, for that illustration, because I, I don't want the church to just be a bunch of leaky Christians who never grow. And so this morning, we're going to talk about what is what exactly is it that we need to be aiming for, doing for people who come to faith. And I want you to think about this. Maybe, maybe as you hear that, you're, you're completely willing to do the work. You just don't know where to start. That's fair enough. I think that the church and and leadership in the church has often failed to prepare and train their people to do that work. The desire's there, but there's no leadership going. So today, I hope to at least set us in the right path. Um, But maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking it's it's you don't really want to adjust your life to take up that work because it will cost. It means you're not going to be able to live your life necessarily how you have. 
if you're going to help a leaky Christian, it takes time and it takes consistency and you need to get involved. And so you're going to have to adjust. Maybe you're not willing to do that yet. Well, I hope you change because that's the work of the kingdom. That's what we're all called to in making disciples. Maybe you sense that you're just not mature enough yet. That might be so. But there's always something you can do for someone else in growth. Whatever it is, and wherever you see yourself this morning in the sermon, I want to move forward with you. Wherever you're at, okay? And I, I intend to put hopefully a biblical vision of what discipleship looks like in front of us this morning. So, our question this morning, what exactly are we aiming for when we begin to disciple someone? I asked the church the question a long time ago. How many of you were actually, when you came to faith, taken by an older Christian and matured, parented, built up, however you want to say it? Not many. I was fortunate enough to have my brother who came to faith and is just an awesome believer. He, he helped me along. Um, I, I had no background in the Bible. I didn't even know really what, what it was. Um, I didn't know how to read it, study it. And he started putting some pieces in my life to help me. Um, but so often people in the church, they have questions. They're coming from backgrounds where they've, they've never been introduced to this. And so they're confused. They don't, they don't get it. And unfortunately, often they don't have someone who will help them, who will come alongside them to do that. So you've been sharing the gospel with a coworker, say. They come to faith. You've patiently answered their questions, explained the meaning of scriptures, prayed for them, loved on them. They come to faith. What's next? Well, that's really the greatest work that we find ourselves in. I want to see, to start off, a parallel that Scripture presents of what's going on, what the work of God is today in the world. Turn with me real quick to Genesis. When we read the Genesis account, there's three different words that God uses when He makes man. I just used one of them. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26... It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in verse 27, we're introduced to the second of the words. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the word make, the word created. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 2 of Genesis basically zeroes in on day 6. Eve's not made yet. God is, is making Adam. In chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, actually, I think I said 6, but verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Those three words, make, created, formed, is what communicates to us what God did originally with the first creation. He made makes people. He created them in His image. He formed Adam. And what's interesting about this for our first point, what are we after in discipleship? We're after that very thing. Let's look at it in the New Testament. All three of these words 
are used in the New Testament of the work of God in discipleship. In Revelation, let me read this to you. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, in the context of this verse, John writes this down in the context of people becoming sons and daughters of God. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. And in context, he's talking about children. So what's God doing? Making new children. Parallel Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Paul writes this, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, because He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Talking about Jews and Gentiles. The word create is used in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new what? Creation. Paralleling Genesis 1.27. But Paul also says the same thing in Ephesians 4.24. Put on the new self, created in the likeness of God. In true righteousness and holiness. What about the word formed that we read in Genesis 2.7? Galatians chapter 4 which was the starting point of my study for this. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul says this, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He says in Romans 8, 29, Those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So here we're told, what is it that we should be after in discipleship? What is God after? Making, creating, and forming people in His image. He did that at first, and it was lost by sin. So what's He now doing? He's doing all things new again. And He's inhabited His church to do that work. Now we're going to flesh this out a little bit for the rest of the sermon, but I want to say this as an application. Many people confuse what the Gospel is really after. The Gospel is not after making you better. It's not after us becoming just better people and fixing up our lives. That's not the gospel. The gospel is put off the old man who's corrupt, put it to death, and put on the new man that's been created in the image and likeness of God, true righteousness and holiness. Our best efforts God's not interested in because Jesus Christ already accomplished what we might be trying to accomplish. What God is after is, hey, receive what Christ has done for you and be made new through that. He's interested in our surrender to Him. When surrender happens, then the image of God begins to be created in us. As long as we try to do it ourselves and just fix up ourselves, we're never going to be recreated in the image of God. It's His work, and it will be by His means. That's our second point. What are the means that God uses to accomplish this work of making all things new. Well, two things specifically mentioned in Scripture. The Word and the Spirit of God. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. These are some awesome verses. So I want to read verse 3, and then we're going to jump down to the end of the chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes this in verse 3. You show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, 
but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Go, jump down to the end of the chapter, verse 16 and following. He goes on to say, he's talking about the the veil that Moses had to put over his face because the glory of the law, um, it was was too bright for the people of Israel to look upon Moses. So he put a veil over his face and and that veil is symbolic of what happened to their heart. They couldn't see the glory of, of God because their hearts became hard. And so in verse 16, he says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil that is over their heart is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. The root of that is the same word form, morphu. Um, transformed is metamorphu. You're, you're metamorphosed into the image of God. But here he says we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So in both those verses in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul clearly identifies this is a spiritual work. The Spirit of God is the one transforming us into His own image, the image of Christ. It's not, it's not ink that we're using to transform people. The Spirit of God is transforming us. What about the Word? John 17, 17. Jesus' high priestly prayer for us. He prayed very simply this. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. If you don't know what sanctify means, it means be made holy. Set them apart by your word. Your word is truth. So the word and the spirit in this work of discipleship, when we seek to recreate the image of God as we're discipling people, it's a spiritual work in the words the Word of God is the pattern, okay? So I want you to understand that the Word of God is the pattern and the Spirit of God accomplishes this work according to the pattern of the Word. Go with me to Colossians. I know we're jumping to some verses here, but this is, uh, is close to the main text of this sermon that I have. <laughs> Colossians chapter 1. I want you to see um, this statement that Paul makes. The end of chapter 1, beginning in verse um, let's begin in verse 27 of Colossians 1. "To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now what Paul just said there before we keep reading is this. Two things. That word warning everyone, and then he says, we, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. Warning literally is a word that means you're putting back into socket something that's been dislocated. Okay. So before people are ready to really receive the word in truth, guess what? Things got to be corrected in their life. 
You put back in the socket that which has been dislocated, and then you're able to teach them. It's, it's very similar for a doctor. If someone comes in with a dislocated shoulder, the doctor's not going to have the, the patient try to do strength exercises to get the shoulder better. He's going to put the shoulder back in and then let it heal and do some exercises to strengthen it. That's how Paul viewed ministry. Look, I can see in your life there's things that need to be put into place that aren't in place, that are out of place. Let me fix that, and then let me instruct you in truth to build you up. Why? What was his aim? To present you mature. It's the same phrase. It's the same idea. He wants to form Christ in you. How does he do it? Through the Word. But then he says in verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with what? All his energy that he powerfully works within me. There's the spiritual aspect of it. Paul can't do this work in his own energy, in his own ability. He's laboring, he's toiling for it, but he's not toiling with his own power. It's a spiritual work. The Spirit of God and the Word of God is what will present people mature in Christ. But he goes on in verse 2, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who've not seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul's heart in every church he ministered at was this idea. Growth in Christ, conformity to Christ, maturity in Christ. It's all the same idea. And it was for that purpose, laboring on their behalf to form Christ, present them mature in Christ. That's what He gave Himself to. That's the work of discipleship. God made man in His image originally. The fall defaced it. So what's God doing now? He's causing people to be born again in the likeness of His image again. But it takes forming to do it. Now, I want you to notice, too, in this passage in Colossians, there's an important point. I don't know if you caught it. Paul actually never went to Colossae. Did you catch that? Read verse 1 and following of chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have what? Not seen me face to face. Do you have to always be present in someone's life face to face? No. It helps. But Paul had a concern for this church that had been established. Though he'd never been there, what's he do? He gives them Christ. He expounds the truth for them. And the second half of the letter, he applies it. What does this mean? What does this look like? So the means, the Word and the Spirit of God. We're going to apply all this in a minute for us. Third point, what is it that's being formed in people? When you disciple someone, what is it that you're actually aiming to do for them? There's three things, at least in Scripture, that we can see. You target the mind, you target their character, and eventually their very bodies. Let's look at this. The mind is conformed to truth. What is transformed and formed in this work of discipleship? It begins with the mind. You guys know Romans 12 too, right? Be transformed, same root, 
by the renewing of your mind. The very first thing that someone who comes to faith in Christ needs is for their mind to be washed by the Word. For for them to come to know Jesus in truth. Paul was so concerned when, when false gospels would come in, for instance, to the Galatian church. He said, you didn't learn that from me as the truth is in Jesus. That false gospel is not Christ's. Not as I've taught him. He called it out. The mind needs to be formed and conformed to the truth of God. This is so often, I think, where the church drops the ball and where we need to get off our chairs and help young believers. When someone comes to faith, there's still, to use my illustration, leakiness in them. So often their minds are still carnal, set on things, earthly things, not things above. Paul said that in Colossians 3. Set your minds on things above, not on the earth, right? What's he doing? Bringing them to a place of spiritual mindedness. This is a work that doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. And what's needed for young believers is someone who does have a good grasp of the Word, who's fellowshipping with God through the Word, who can teach them the Word to do it. To come up alongside them and say, hey, I see this in your life. I see you've got questions here. Let me help you answer them. Let's search it out together. You need to teach people the Word of God because it's the mind that transforms everything else. So the mind is conformed to the truth. That's the first thing in discipleship that we need to do for young believers. The second thing, the character is also conformed to righteousness and holiness. We read the two passages, Ephesians 4.24. You've been created, born again, in the likeness of God. That likeness is true righteousness and true holiness. So our minds are washed by the Word. It's transformed. That then affects how we live. No longer do we think that sin is okay, these things that we used to do. Now we see it as God sees it. My mind's been transformed. Well, what happens from there? My life has changed. That's a process, though. Again, it's not something that happens overnight. And not only that, it's something that young believers need more mature believers to help them with, to grow in. Have you ever noticed in Paul's writings how he structures his letters? This this is awesome. And it, it proves this point. Every one of Paul's letters, the first half of the letter, what he does, he expounds on the truth. He explains truth to people. Doctrine. But he doesn't stop there. The second half of his letter, he takes what he expounded and he makes it personal. He applies it. There's character. He's aiming in the first half of his letter to transform his readers' minds, infuse the truth of God in there, but the second half, what's he doing? How's this going to affect your life? Paul's always so balanced in what he's doing. He's making disciples, even as he structures his letter. He structures his letter in a process that makes disciples. So everywhere we look in the New Testament, the mind and the character are being formed to Christ. Now, I did want to say this earlier, because this will help clear up the next point. When we are conformed to the image of Christ and to His likeness, it's it's not that Jesus is... uh, We're going to look physically like Jesus, right? I don't want you guys to think that. 
And it's not even, for instance, as, as Mormonism might teach, that we actually become deity. No, we don't become deity. That's not what the likeness of God means. It is the character of Jesus that is formed in us. And so when you see righteousness, when you see truth, when you see holiness, you might see it in different faces in the crowd, but it's the same. It's the same. That's what's being formed in every child of God. The third thing that's targeted is the body. Now this is not the focus of our study, but I do want to read this just to be complete. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven. This is verse 20 and 21. And from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our bodies, our lowly body, to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. John says when Christ appears, we don't know what we're going to look like yet, but we will look like Him. We will be like He is. It's the same idea. Our minds are transformed. Our characters transformed. And one day, our very bodies will reflect His very glory. So it's a total makeover that Jesus is after in people. And it's not just something uh, new in number. It's something brand new. Qualitatively, not quantitatively. If you want a deeper study on that, just for your personal reasons, go read 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul expounds on that. That first is sown the natural body, then the spiritual body. First comes the natural, then the spiritual. Paul talks about this same truth in 1 Corinthians 15. So the main point here for the rest of this sermon, what's our role in this? What's our role? Because unfortunately, I'll confess this, I've been parts of, of a theological tradition that I now somewhat make distinctions with that is so focused on the sovereignty of God and salvation that they actually separate out man's role. And so it's, it's so, so heavily focused on the sovereignty of God and salvation, what happens is man's relegated to this place where we don't really do anything. And that's not biblical. God is sovereign in salvation, but He's sovereignly chosen to what? Inhabit the church and you to do it and to empower you, the church, to do the work. That's what His sovereignty has done. He hasn't removed people from doing the work. He's infused Himself into people to do the work. Going back to Colossians chapter 1, what did Paul say? Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then he says this, For this I toil, struggling on your behalf, According to whose power? His power. You see the relationship there that we have in discipleship? So in forming Christ in people, as Paul told the Galatians, I'm in, in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The formation of, of Christ in, in His children is a partnership that we have with the Lord. He's sovereign in it. And he sovereignly partnered with his church to do the work. He gives you his power to do the work. So forming Christ in disciples requires from us several things. And if you're taking notes, write this down. First, and this is so obvious, sometimes it's missed. First, it needs spiritually minded people to engage in the work. 
It needs spiritually minded people to engage in the work. The second thing, it needs spiritual people who know how to labor in a spiritual way. Every work, every trade requires certain tools. Ronnie's got his guitar and he's got his voice. I've got my voice and the drums, you know, when I, no, it was a joke. I, you guys know I can't sing. Every work requires certain tools. When you're engaging in spiritual labor, you don't use carnal weapons, right? 2 Corinthians 10.5. Actually, 3-5. through five. The weapons of our war, warfare are not carnal, but spiritual. Right? So, spiritual people who know how to labor in a spiritual way. You're not going to have success making disciples, which is a spiritual work, laboring for it in a carnal way. All you're going to do is reproduce the flesh, not reproduce Christ. The third thing, in these spiritual people who know how to form spiritual realities in others. It needs people who can come look at a leaky roof, identify where the leaks are, and know how to fix it. That's what it needs. That's the work that we partner with Christ in the church. Martin Luther, I love how he said it. Hopefully you all know who Martin Luther is. He says this, the word comes from the mouth of a minister or teacher, and he's not simply thinking of a pastor in context. Anybody who speaks, teaches the word is, is what he's talking about. The word comes from the mouth of a minister or a teacher, and it enters into the heart of the person who hears it. It's in the heart that the Holy Spirit is present and imprints the word heard on their heart so that the heart of the person will consent to the word. He concludes this, every godly teacher thus is a father who engenders and forms the shape of a Christian heart and that by the ministry of the word. Let me say this, if you're a parent, if you're a Christian and, and you've shared the gospel with people who don't know the Lord, if you're a coworker who's sharing the gospel with people, Martin Luther just said this of you. You are, in a sense, a father engendering the truth in someone's heart. You are shaping their heart with what you say and do. And what we ought to be doing as the church is speaking the Word of God into people's lives because the Word of God is what the Holy Spirit of God uses to then transform. That's the partnership. So true disciples press beyond simply friendships. I was talking to Bo about this this week. What we find so often in church is really good friendship. You know what I mean? Now, I'm not dogging that. That's good. Friendships are not bad. But friendships are not necessarily discipleship. What do I mean by that? I mean true discipleship. To become a discipler presses beyond just a platonic friendship and it engages people with the realities of Christ in their life. Hey, where are you at with the Lord? What is the Gospel doing in your life now? What's Christ doing in your life on your behalf? What's He showing you? You speak about spiritual things, spiritual realities. Friendship doesn't necessarily do that. 
True disciples discern what may be lacking spiritually in someone else. Can see areas of weakness in each other. Now, I want to make this clear too. We don't, we don't just want to envision ourselves as the one looking at other people and what, what lacks in them, and I can go do that for them. You may be used in that way, right? Pastoral ministry is largely that. You can, you can uh, engage with people and see, hey, you know, they, they need help in this area of their walk. They're deficient. But it's symbiotic. It goes this way too. Even as a pastor, guess what? I need you guys to speak truth into my life. Why? Because Christ is still being formed in me as well. I haven't arrived yet, just like Paul said. I haven't attained it. Bo and Dwayne and I are not there. So it goes both ways. But disciples, whatever direction it's going, have spiritual discernment. And they can speak to spiritual issues. I love this. It's a great example of, of, of this going on. Go to 2 Peter. You, you really see this with every apostle in the letters they wrote. This is, this is what the apostles did. I, I just pointed it out with Paul. What's Paul do in his letters? He expounds the truth for people and then he applies it for their life. What's he doing? He's forming Christ. He's speaking to the spiritual realities that are in front of them and the circumstances they're facing. Peter does the same thing. He speaks spiritual truth in their life to transform them. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we're not going to read all of it, but beginning in verse 5, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. So on and so forth. What's he speaking about? Spiritual needs. He's saying what you need to do is add this to your life, and with that, add this, and with that, add this, and with that, add this. He has insight into what these people needed. But in verse 12, he says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in them. What's Peter doing? He's discipling. He sees what's lacking in the church. He says, here's what you need. And I intend always to remind you of it. (laughs) That's a discipler. So common to what all of we've seen these last several weeks in evangelism and now beginning into the work of actually bringing someone, maturing someone in the faith, is that the power and the pattern belong to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. But that doesn't mean you have no role. Common to everything we've seen, God uses people, the church. He uses people to to do this. Paul said, I struggle, I labor. Even though I haven't seen you, I've been in this toil for you. So God causes the new creation. We partner with Him in forming. So disciples must be people who are spiritually minded minded and kingdom focused. They must be spiritually discerned and tested. I was sharing with Ronnie this week as we've gotten to start meeting together and build one another up. And I told him just of, of a trial that I'd gone through, and it was a severe trial, I made the comment to him, unless that trial had happened to me, I don't think I would have been ready to pastor. Remember that? It's an encouragement, right? We can look at these events in our life as as bad, and what I had to learn was, no, these things aren't bad. They're used by God to grow me. It's a discipleship relationship. Disciples must be in the Word themselves, using the Word to teach and build up others. 
Paul said we don't form ourselves, we don't proclaim ourselves to people. It's Christ we proclaim. Well, that requires your fellowshipping with Jesus. You're putting Jesus before people who need Jesus, not putting yourself before them. Don't conform to who I am, conform to who He is. We don't want a bunch of little cests running around. That would be a mess. Disciples must also show how the Word applies to life, how it's lived out. Circumstances come each to each and every one of us. They're trying. They're difficult. How does the Word of God and the Spirit of God walk through this with me? You know what that takes? It takes people who've gone through the fire before to say, hey, you'll get through it. Don't worry. God's faithful. Here's how. If I were to ask you a question, I don't want you to answer this. If I were to ask you, would you be able to form Christ in someone right now? Does that make you nervous? <laughs> Would you be able to take someone who's just come to faith, see what's lacking in their faith, like Paul said to the church, I see what, what lacks in you and I seek to, to supply your need. Could you take someone and establish them in Christ, form Christ in them, so that they'd come to a place where they now can take someone and do that and replicate over and over and over? This is where we as the church have dropped the ball in so many ways, as I said earlier. We don't train our people to be disciple makers. Sometimes people just refuse to give themselves to that work. They're too busy or whatever. I can't do much about that. But what I can appeal to you is, look, this is what Christ is after. He created us in His image, and what's He doing now? He's recreating the image of His Son in people, and He uses the church to do it. Give yourself to that work. It might cost you, but you will never lose out on anything. It is the work of the kingdom. It's what Christ came in the world to do and what He is still doing. We read Romans 8.29 earlier where He says, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. God's eternal plan what He predestined to happen was what? Conformity to His Son. He wants His Son formed in the church. That's God's eternal plan for us. Last night, we, uh, in our men's group, we got to go bowling. And I'm, I'm proud to say we, we put it to the other team. Trevor, okay, don't shake your head. No shame. But Ronnie and Trevor and I stayed afterward and, and we're talking. Actually, i got to back up. I can't take any credit. It was really Mr. Mark here was the, uh, don't challenge Mark in bowling. He's a stud. But Ronnie and Trevor and I were talking after bowling last night. And, and Trevor made this statement that we, we all were just talking about the, the idea of this. He said, we as Christians need to live and do life together. That's really what this sermon is about. What's the aim? Conformity to Christ. How is that accomplished? Do life together. If you're not involved with each other, what I've just preached on will never happen. You have to be in, in each other's lives. If it doesn't happen, the work of the kingdom, the work of discipleship, just won't go anywhere in a church. So I appreciate Trevor saying that. We have to do 
life together as a body. It's daily, it's weekly, it's monthly, it's yearly. We're involved. Now, I'm not saying it's moment by moment, but if your heart doesn't even desire to fellowship throughout a week with Christians and to be a part of their life and and for them to be a part of your life, you will run aground in your faith because the rain of life will come. It will expose the leaks and the holes in your life. And what do you need? You need the body to come alongside you and carry your burdens. That is the royal law of Christ. And that is what He calls us to fulfill. That requires the one who comes to give up something they may have wanted to do. And say, that can wait. I can pour into to these things. It's a level of intimacy with each other where we would gladly spend and be spent in the building up of one another rather than doing what I want to do. That's what Paul said, Philippians chapter 2, have that mindset in you. That was the mindset of Christ. Count each other as more significant than yourselves. Don't look to your interests only, but to the interests of others. How many of you, I wrote this down in my notes for me, have I truly given myself to you as a church where the pain, the anguish of Christ being formed in you is felt as severe as birth pains? I'm about to go through, uh, I'm not, uh, let me back up, about to put my foot in my mouth. <laughs> my wife with me looking on is about to go through birth pains. It's anguish, right? It's, it's severe. But that's what Paul used to, to communicate how he felt in this process on behalf of the Galatians. It's so severe of a burden, I want to see Christ formed in you. And I labor, I struggle, I toil for that end until it happens. Have you come to that place yet? When when you look at other members of Waypoint here, do you have that anguish in in your soul for them? That's what was present in Jesus. That's what was present in the apostles. It's what they labored for. And they gave themselves to that work. And I can say this, church, when we as the church take up that hard, that enduring, that rewarding, that heartbreaking, that breathtaking work, that's when the glory and image of Christ will be magnified in the church. That's when it will happen. The love of God will be seen in all of its glory as we endure with one another and so form patience, as we forgive one another and so form grace, as we speak truth to one another and so form justice, and as we suffer together and so form a community of faith. That's what it means. Two weeks from now, we're going to top it off with a little more detail of how this can happen in a pragmatic sense. If you would, I want you to go before the Lord in time of just reflection and prayer as we sing this last song, which is really a perfect song. And I want you to ask yourself, am I withholding myself from from being a part of this kind of discipleship work. As your eyes are closed, just think about these things. Christ came for you. He sought you out when you weren't seeking Him. He called you to Himself when you weren't asking. And He calls you into this relationship of conformity to Himself. Has it stopped there for you? Or has it pressed beyond that to say, Lord, how can I now do this 
in connection with someone else. That is the kingdom work. That's how the kingdom of God spreads. What's my role in it, Lord? Ask Him. And if He reveals to you, here's your role, but you know what? There's things in your life that are hindering you from accomplishing it. Then confess it. You will have no regret giving up things in your life that are prohibiting you from doing what God's kingdom is all about. In fact, your joy will be increased. Your purpose will be fulfilled. Your identity will be seen. You'll be full of grace and truth. Father God, I pray that You do a work of transformation in us. Father, where we not only have a passion to know You, but a passion to make You known. Father, having been recipients of Your grace, having tasted of Your kindness, of Your forgiveness toward us, Lord, compel us, as we saw last week, to go out and, and give that away. And Father, once we give it away, to build people up to maturity in Christ, to become disciple-makers, people who are spiritually-minded, spiritually-equipped, spiritually-discerned and tested, to be able to take someone who's just come out of the world and to establish them in righteousness and holiness. To help facilitate through the preaching and teaching of Your Word the transformation of their mind where they see Christ in all of His glory and all of His beauty and truth. And Father, where they're established firmly in You so that they can take that mantle up and reproduce. Father, the very first command given to Adam and Eve was to go out into all the earth to reproduce, to populate it. And parallel that to the New Testament command, Father, we are to do the same thing. We are to form Christ in people who are in the world so that Your image, Your glory, Your love, might fill the earth. So Father, make us passionate about this. Help us not to fear. Father, if we sense immaturity or deficiencies in ourselves, help us to look to You who will equip us for every good work and purpose. In fact, You already have, Peter says. You've given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. But You tell us to go. Father, as we sing this last song, here's my heart. May we truly sing it from our heart. May we mean what we're saying. Father, if we're not willing to give You our hearts, to be Lord, to direct us to do this or that, Father, help us to not seeing it. And keep ourselves from hypocrisy. If we mean it, Lord, here's our heart. Then do what You will with us. Take us into whatever ministry it might be. Help us to give ourselves fully to you in it. We pray in Christ's name.